We are in the book of Second Peter. You can feel free to open up to Second Peter chapter 2. And kids, you may have already left. Good job. And if you need Bibles, please raise your hand and an usher will gladly bring you one. Second Peter chapter 2. So my wife and I, Emily, we recently became homeowners. It's very exciting. Yeah. It means you're stuck with us for longer. And uh, for those of you who don't know, my, my name is Ben. I'm one of the associate pastors here at this church. And prior to coming here, my wife and I, our family, we were missionaries uh, overseas for a number of years. And since we moved back to the States a number of years ago, we've had this longing to have a place that we could call home. Thanks, Phil. And uh, not just a place we could call home, but, but like a house. Um, in which we could raise our kids, uh, a place where others could come and be ministered to, a home where we could grow and flourish. Um, so we recently bought a home. God provided. Um, there's just one problem, one tiny problem. Uh, our home, our oasis, has a odor disorder. <clears throat> now, now we, we knew this buying the house, uh, but but it, it smells. It smells bad. And uh, it seems that multiple substances over the years, which are not worth mentioning here, were frequently smoked in the house. And anything porous absorbs that scent. And so while we've been longing for this place where our family can flourish, it's not really a place where we can flourish yet. And so in order to enact flourishing for our family, Emily and I have been scouring the walls with mops, with a certain cleaning solution. Uh, yes, you can use mops on walls and on the ceiling, and not just on the floor. And uh, we've been cleaning off the walls with a special solution, and then we have to buy a special formulated primer to coat the walls in order to hopefully rid the house of this smell. Another way to frame this is Emily and I are enacting judgment on this infectious odor. And this judgment is good. This is, judgment is a, a good thing. It's, it's for the good of our family so that we can flourish. And at the end of the day, uh, the smell, it deserves judgment. 100%. And in Second Peter 2, which is our text for this morning, we're going to go through the whole chapter. We see that God, too, has a house. And he's going to enact judgment on those who oppose him. He's going to enact judgment on those who oppose his people, and he's going to enact judgment on those who oppose his good purposes. Remember, Peter is, we've been going through the book of Peter, 2 Peter, once a month, and he's writing to believers in Asia Minor because heretical teachers have risen up within their churches, within these churches he's writing to, and and these individuals are, are claiming that Jesus, there is no second coming of Christ. Jesus is not coming back. Uh, there would be, there is no final judgment. And so you could basically claim to be a Christian and live kind of however you want. And so in order to combat this, Peter goes after these false teachers and he starts condemning them in this chapter. It gets pretty heavy. The hammer's gonna drop. And in dropping the hammer on these guys, it becomes clear for the believers that he's writing to how these believers should respond to the false teachers. 
So our big idea this morning, which will be on the screen, is in the form of a question. What do you do when a heretic comes knocking? What do you do when a heretic comes knocking? And there's three answers in our text this morning, which we're going to look at together. The first thing that you do when a heretic comes knocking is you look to God's character. We're going to see this in verses 1 through the first part of verse 10. So remember, if you remember a month ago, I know it was a month ago, um, but if you remember a month ago, at the end of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, Peter just got done talking about God's word as a trusted news source over and against the fake news that was coming out of the news source of these false teachers. Specifically, he mentions at the end of chapter 1, the prophets of the Old Testament and how they spoke truth from God. And so that now with the prophets on his mind, he launches into the first part of verse 1. It says, but false teachers, or sorry, false prophets also arose among the people. This is speaking of the people of Israel. Just as there will be false teachers among you. So he basically says, listen, just as there were true and false prophets among the Israelites in the Old Testament, so there will be for New Testament believers. Like, you shouldn't be shocked that this is happening. Faithful believers who I'm writing to. And he continues, and we start to see what these false teachers do. So I'm going to read um, through verse 3, and we'll summarize. Just as there will be false teachers among you, who, now we'll listen to what they do, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master, that's Jesus, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. So so to summarize, and I'm going to drag in some stuff that comes in later in the chapter, but I just think it's important for us to see right at the the get-go what these guys were doing. Uh, we, We don't know exactly what they taught, seems like Peter's writing to them and assumed this was common knowledge, what they taught. But in short, it seems that they frequently indulged in immoral sexual activities. So sexual activities outside of the covenant of marriage in all shapes and forms. They were dragging others along to do the same. So they're saying, hey, we're doing this. You can do this too. Basically, you can indulge all of your sexual appetites at will. No problem. And you can call yourself a Christian. And it seems like somehow <clears throat> they were making profit off of this. Like they were going, they were in the church and people were paying them to teach these things. So they're greedy. They're being paid for their teaching. And ultimately this shows that they were denying their master. They were denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. They were not obedient to him and his commands. And then as we continue to read the letter, and as I've already mentioned, not only were these false teachers members of the churches that Peter wrote to, but the reason these false teachers felt so free to live the way that they did and persuade others to follow them in it is because they denied the truth that Jesus is coming back. And if Jesus is not coming back, there is no final judgment. His eternal kingdom will not be established. And if there's no final judgment, well then, who cares? I can live however I want. There is no point in living a moral life. So, 
I can have my cake and eat it too. I can have Jesus and, can I, and I can indulge my lustful desires. It's an attractive message, right? Similar to what many might claim today. And it was deeply hurting the churches that Peter was writing to. And in one sense, I, I think that in a similar way, um, it's not hard for us to imagine what these believers who were staying faithful to Jesus were experiencing. We've all heard about stories of leaders falling, denying Christ, even leading others into adulterous relationships, and then the devastation that that has on not only a local church, but then the church's witness in that community or broader. In one sense, as believers who are seeking to be faithful to Christ in this world, we are constantly surrounded by false teaching um, in many shapes and sizes. Some might claim that the gospel that we believe is too narrow-minded. Some might claim that truth is relative. Well, that might be true for you, but it's not really true for me. Or there are even churches who claim to be Christians who are waving multicolored flags, even in our community. Our culture claims that the highest good, the pinnacle of all values, is to express your true inner self. Whatever you might think that be, might be. Express yourself. Don't, don't, don't suppress. I think for me as a young father, my, my kids are even sold false narratives by Netflix or whoever else. They're sold false narratives about what's true and what isn't true. So I, I think for these reasons and more, we, we can relate to the believers that Peter's writing to and the, and the pain that they're experiencing. They, like us, uh, feel the effects of the world and false heretical teachings. And so, <clears throat> I think in, in that sort of a context, it's not hard to imagine as well what kind of questions these believers would be asking. What kind of questions are we asking, right? Like, like what assurance do I have if, I'm, if I claim to be a Christian and I'm faithfully following Jesus? What assurance do I have that I'm going to be faithful to God in the midst of such a war zone. How do I know I'm not going to get taken out or fall prey to the heretical teachings around me? Am I going to make it to the end? Or is God going to resolve all these issues one day? Like, is he actually going to come back? Is he actually going to bring justice and make everything right? Because, you know, he sure seems to be taking a long time Maybe these false teachers aren't wrong, so after all. And so Peter, <clears throat> knowing these struggles and knowing the situation, steps into the midst of all of this to remind the believers and us that these false teachers, look at the end of verse 3, he says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. God has not fallen asleep on the job. Despite what you might think, despite the pressures you feel, despite all of that, God has not fallen asleep. So, okay, Peter, that's a bold claim. So what kind of assurance do I have in this claim of yours? Well, he starts backing up his claim in verse 4 and, and on. And, and, and here, 
Peter gives the believers and us assurance in his claim that God has, hasn't fallen asleep. He, he hasn't fallen asleep at the wheel. He, he, he backs up this claim and gives us assurance based on God's character through how, and, and because of how he's always worked throughout history. And, 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 and he shows this by giving us famous examples in the Old Testament of God's judgments and then him preserving his people. So I'm just going to read this and then um, we will discuss it. 4, verse 4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. This is from Genesis 6, where Phil read. And committed them the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, this is talking about the flood, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And... If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, so if all these things are true, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those, so you can see him here turning to the false teachers, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The key is this if in verse 4, which then gets repeated over and over, if this is true, and then the then comes in verse 9. If all these things are true, if God has worked this way in the past, if he has traditionally judged the ungodly and preserved those who are faithful to him, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, challenges to, our, to, to your faith, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. In other words, <clears throat> Peter is saying, listen, brothers and sisters, when a heretic comes knocking at your door, the first thing you need to remember is to look to God's character. Look to how he has acted in history and, his, and the consistency of his character. Look to his promises, both to keep his people and to judge the unrighteous. Brothers and sisters, God has promised to keep us, to preserve us, that we might continue to be faithful to him until the last day. That, 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 Peter coming into the midst of all of this chaos for these believers is giving them comfort. There's hope. God is going to keep you. He's always worked this way. You don't have to fret. So as we journey through this life, as we feel the wear and tear of this world, as we are confronted with false narratives and the heat is on us and we feel helpless, and we fear what might happen as our cry of Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, endlessly echoes and we wonder why am I waiting so long? We're reminded here to lift our eyes to God and to look at him, to look at his character, to look at his promises. And when we see him and all that he is 
and all his promises to us, we realize God isn't freaking out. He's not anxious. He's not worried. He's seen all of this before. And he's always kept his people in the midst of it. He's not fretting. He's not wringing his hands. He is not surprised. God is not surprised about the times that we live in. He is not surprised about the pressures that we are facing. He is not anxious or worried. If he was faithful to keep the saints of old, he will be faithful to keep us. If he was strong enough to save you, he is strong enough to keep you. Peter basically says, guys, God knows what he's doing. You can trust him. And yet, this is only one side of the coin, right? The the other half of, of our hope as believers is not only in God's keeping power, but also in his coming judgment. As Peter continues in, and, and we're going to read about this, as he continues and he goes directly after these false teachers, we see that God not only hates sin, but he will rid his house of sin's stench. All evil, suffering, pain, tears, and sorrow will be destroyed. And Peter's logic here is, listen guys, God has always worked this way. He's always judged the evil and the wicked. So final judgment, it's guaranteed. And the beautiful thing is, for us as Christians, this judgment's not on us. Because who is it on in our place? It was on Christ, who took the punishment and judgment for sin when he suffered and died in our place on the cross. So that anyone, any sinner, who stands under judgment, who repents of their sin and believes in Christ for salvation will be saved. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, there's some faces out there, I don't know. If you're here today, or maybe you've grown up coming to church with your parents, this hope that we have as believers that we're talking about can be yours too, right? Like you don't have to face God's judgment. You can be cleansed of sin's stench and you can be set free from its shame and acquitted from its guilt and know the hope of new life in Jesus. If that's something that you're interested in, please talk to me or talk to somebody else afterward. But judgment is coming and God will cleanse his house, whether by people repenting from their sins and turning to faith in Christ or through judgment. So when a heretic comes knocking, what do we do? First thing we do is we look to God's character. And we'll see that we have hope. We have real hope based on the the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God. We have hope not only that God will make sure that you get home, but that when you get there, it doesn't stink. That's the first thing. Second thing When a heretic comes knocking, you want to make sure that you smell what's being served. Use your sniffer. Use it well. If you remember, at the end of chapter 1, we saw Peter showing forth his credentials. Uh, 
why the believers should listen to him and the apostles and their teaching, God's word, and not these false teachers. So he's setting forth, he says, listen, we're legit. And now in this next section, Peter basically roasts the false teachers. It gets hot. It gets, it's scathing. But it's also satirical as you read it. And and the reason Peter does this is is to prove just how obvious it is that these teachers, they they have zero credentials. They have zero street cred. And so what they stand for is false. In in, in other words, it's not hard to smell what they're serving, like that it stinks. It's just bad news. So we're going to march through a lot of verses, and I'm going to give us some commentary as we go, but... Peter wants this to have an effect. He just starts firing off rounds and they just, it just keeps coming and coming and coming. So we're going to let it come to us in that way and let it sink in. Second half of verse 10, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So these, these, these verses are slightly strange. Um, we don't have time to talk about it all this morning and talk to me afterward. They, they seem to speak about the false teachers slandering and making judgments against angels, while angels who would have a right to judge the false teachers leave that business to God. The, the point is, what the first two words that Peter says, bold and willful, they, they're just boldly arrogant, these false teachers, in their disposition. They think of themselves way too highly. Verse 12, But these, false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. He describes them like animals in the sense that they're they're not rational. Animals aren't usually rational beings, but they, they live out of their desires. And their feelings, just creatures of instinct. Moreover, these false teachers, they confidently teach and speak about things. They don't have any idea what they're talking about, is what he says. But they're proud. And then he, it's like Peter just can't stop. He's like, he just has to like blurt out like, they're going to, they, they, they're going to get what's coming to them. What they're sowing, the wrongs that they're doing are going to come right back on their head. Continuing in verse 13, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their day job is evil. That's their job. They revel in the daytime. When normal people are working, guess what they're doing? They're just sending up a storm. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Seems like this is speaking about the Lord's Supper and the fact that Peter's saying they're just shameful blots and blemishes on the church. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Every woman they look at is an opportunity to commit adultery, and they can't get enough. They entice unsteady souls, they're preying on the weak. They have hearts trained in greed, so they have PhDs in, in, in greediness. And then he just ends, accursed children. They are under God's judgment. But we're not done yet. It keeps going. 
Peter in verse 15 compares them to Balaam. He was a prophet in the Old Testament who worked against God's people in the book of Numbers. Let's see what he says. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. These false teachers, they've gone off the right path. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. And what was Balaam like? Well, this guy, he loved gain from wrongdoing. But was rebuked for his own transgression, a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So these false teachers, they, they love personal gain, financial gain, by doing wrong things to other people. And they are so irrational. They are so, dare I say, dumb, that a donkey is smarter than them. A donkey is more in line with the truth than they are. I told you, Peter gets hot. Verse 17, we're not done yet. These, the false teachers, are waterless springs, mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So the false teachers are claiming to be those who have the corner of the market on truth. Basically, listen, you're thirsty for truth? Come to me. I'll quench your thirst. We'll quench your thirst. And we're going to enlighten you. But instead of being a well to which people can go and receive true water, and instead of giving them glasses, they're like an empty well. They make big promises, but you come and you, you can't, there's no water. You're not satisfied. Or they're like a fog in a storm. If you've ever tried to drive in a storm and it's foggy, it is hard work. You can't see straight. The false teachers leave their victims empty and lost. And moreover, they they promise freedom. This true gospel from Peter, the uh, apostle, um, you know what Peter talks about? Yeah, that's just restricting. Come be free. Don't, Don't deny who you are. Don't suppress your desires. You can have your Jesus and all the sin you want. Keep going. Verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilement of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So the final thing Peter gets at here is that these false teachers, and it seems like he could even be referring to those that follow the false teachers, Peter says, you know what? These, these guys are members of your churches. Um, it would have been better had they never even heard the truth of the gospel. Like to hear the truth and then reject it and embrace rebellion and sin, it's like slurping up your vomit off the floor. 
Now, I know this is a lot to take in. But do we see the picture that Peter paints? Like, how hard is it to recognize these false teachers? How hard is it? It's not that hard, right? Pretty sure it's not that hard to smell what they're serving up. It's rancid. Because you know what they're serving? You know what they're giving to you? It's vomit. They're serving you vomit. So what does this vomit-esque false teaching smell like? What does it smell like? How can you recognize false teaching? I think one of the things that we see here is that a telltale smell of false teaching is bad doctrine. Ideologies and ideas that blatantly contradict God's written word. Peter in chapter 1 has already made a case that God has set believers up for success by giving them everything that they need to lead lead a godly and virtuous life, full of purity, self-control. It's pretty much the opposite of these false teachers. And so the point would be, if anybody comes to you, brothers and sisters, please please hear this. If, if, If anybody comes to you claiming to be a Christian and tries to convince you that your personal holiness doesn't matter, or if anybody tries to convince you that your sexual purity isn't important, or that you can be saved, but Jesus doesn't really have to be Lord of your life. You can, you, you can get you know the fire insurance, but you don't really have to bow the knee to King Jesus. Start sniffing. And then label it as false teaching. I, I think the other way that Peter shows us how to recognize false teaching, the, the other way that we sniff out false teaching, the, the, one of the sense that... that the vomit of false teaching gives off is by seeing what kind of fruit that teaching produces. Like it is beyond obvious that these guys, these false teachers, they live corrupt lives. What they teach does not lead to life and smiles and lilies in the field and frolicking and happiness. You know where it ends up? It ends up in corruption and evil and destruction. It leads to, as Peter talks about, enslavement to sin and a corrupt way of life, unpleasing to God. The the opposite would be good gospel-centered, Bible-saturated teaching should produce in people's lives the kind of virtuous fruit which is pleasing to God. And and again, the the wonderful reality is, is that, you know, if we're talking about God keeping us and promising judgment one day, well, we see here one of the ways that God keeps us in this life, keeps us faithful to him. He's given us spiritual noses, the smell, when false teaching comes our way. It's, it's, it's one of the ways that God helps keep us faithful to the end. And this is one of the reasons I would just commend to you this morning. I think this is one of the reasons why it is so vital for your Christian well-being, for the well-being of your discipleship in Christ, for being able to train and calibrate your senses, your sense of spiritual smell, one of the best ways to do that is by gathering with the church. Is by regularly singing God's word, hearing it preached, talking with others, having conversations. That is one of the best contexts in which God helps calibrate our spiritual sniffers. 
It's one of the reasons that you should not try to be the Lone Ranger Christian. So what do you do when a heretic knocks on your door and vomits all over your house? That's the picture. You smell it and you recognize the teaching for what it is. That's false. But it's not enough just to smell the false teaching and recognize it as such, is it? We also need to run in the opposite direction. And and this is the third point. We, We need to run when a heretic comes knocking. Run the opposite way. Reject what they're serving. Imagine for a second that Emily and I bought our house, which you don't have to imagine that. We did. Okay, so that's real. So we bought our house. But imagine that we just decided to live with the stench. For a while, we, I don't even know if nose plugs are a thing, but we get nose plugs off of Amazon. And, uh, and whenever you come over, we have a little bowl at our entry table full of nose plugs that you can plug your nose with. But slowly, as we live in this stench, we get used to the smell and it kind of becomes normal. And not only that, we start to smell that way, and we kind of like it. When you sit with false teaching long enough, it becomes normal. And it becomes, you even start to like it. And this is what happened, not just with the false teachers, but as we saw in verse 17 through 22, this is what happened with others in these churches. The sobering reality is, is that there were people in these churches who were members, who paid lip service to Jesus. They said all the right things. They spoke Christianese. They had all the right vocab. They raised their hand when they sang worship songs. They walked the aisle. But slowly, they showed that they were never really transformed by God in the first place. They showed, as Peter would say, that they were dogs and pigs, lapping up their vomit off the floor. That they liked it. They smelled the vomit and they didn't run the other way, but went right back to it. And, and Peter describes this throughout our text not just in these terms, but as he says in multiple places, so you can look at verse 2, verse 15, verse 21, about its language used of departing from the right way, departing from the proper path. Instead of running away from the false teaching, there were those who were running towards it. Now, I think it's necessary to say that Christians sin. Do we sin? Yes? Yes. We sin. We are not perfect. So just because you struggle with sin this morning, if you claim to be a Christian, just because you struggle with sin, does not mean that you immediately need to jump to the conclusion that you're not a Christian from this text. But what this text does act as is a reminder. If your whole life is consumed in doing what Peter says the dog or the pig does here with sin, I think there's a 
proper response to examine your life. And I, I think that this also acts as a reminder that though, for those of us who are faithfully following Christ, that we are deeply saddened, we should not be surprised if there are some who eventually or have, though they seem like they're sheep, they, they end up showing that they're wolves. But I think that this also acts as an exhortation. That we as believers should not just seek to recognize false teaching, but when we smell it, we should run in defiant rejection from it. That it's vomit and mud compared to the pearl of the gospel. And in, and I think part of the, the way that we run away from false teaching is some of what we've already said, right? Surrounding ourselves with faithful believers, seeking counsel and help when we're not sure of things that are coming our way. For those of you who are young, or maybe those of you who are old, things that come to your way on social media and YouTube, things that come to us on the news, things that come to us in our workplaces. It's good to process this stuff with other believers. I, I, I think another way <clears throat> that we can practically run in defiant rejection from false teaching, it's not just running away, but it's running to something. And one of the main things that we run to is the truth. When you're faced with not truth, you run to truth. It's, it's by saturating our lives and our minds and our hearts and our emotions in the truth of God's word. And, and there's lots of ways to do this. I think one way is by actually taking the things that we're struggling with, the thoughts that might come our way, the ideologies of our present world, and as we read God's word, praying through those things, like applying what we're reading in God's word through prayer in order to process these things before God and in light of his word. I think it's a helpful exercise to open up a psalm and to pray through it in light of your life and your struggles, your worries, your fears, the things that are coming your way. And ultimately, if we're going back to what one of the main encouragements that Peter is giving to these believers, that he's keeping them, they're going to make it. Running away from false teaching is yet another means that God has given to us in order to keep us faithful to him. Don't go down that path, Peter would say. You see where I'm saying it's going to end, and you see where it's presently ending in the way that these guys live their lives. Don't go there. It's gross. So what do you do when a heretic comes knocking? You, you run the other direction. When, uh, when Emily and I bought our house, we knew that one of the first things that we would have to do is get rid of the smell. And uh, thankfully, as I've described, uh, we have hope that we can and hope that you can come visit us soon. Um, we, we have hope that our world will not be defined by that stench. And the reality is, is that as believers in Christ, though it might seem that we have all sorts of reasons to despair in this life, we have, it might seem like we have all sorts of reasons to be anxious and worried about the times that we currently live in. The reality is, which we see from God's word this morning, because we know that God will judge the world and make all things right, 
And because we know that God is keeping us, because he's given us noses to smell and feet to run, because of who God is, we of all people have the most hope. Even though heresy abounds, our hope abounds all the more. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us hope. As we live in this world, we can look to you and be comforted. Pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning as we continue to sing about you, our wonderful and merciful Savior who has saved us, who has ransomed us, who has redeemed us. And as we live in the midst of a world that is rejecting you, we proclaim through the song that we're going to sing, your praises. We want to declare which side we're on and remember the hope that we have in you because of the gospel. We pray these things in your name. Amen.